Hello, and welcome to 10 Very Big Books, a Malazan read-through podcast. My name is Peter Bond, and with me today is my friend and closest confidant, India Jones. Hello. Um, our producer, AJ Faleri. Hello. And last but not least, Joshua Dean Baker. It's me. Um, <laughs> and returning to the show, our esteemed guest uh, for the ninth time to wrap up, uh, help us wrap up our read through of the Mao's Handbook of the Fallen. It is uh, the author and creator of Mao's Handbook of the Fallen himself, Stephen Erickson. Welcome back. Hello. How are you doing today? It's been a while. How fares 2023? Not too bad. Not too bad. It's um, I've got a lot of projects sort of I'm in the midst of. And um, at the moment, I'm not seeing sort of a, a way, um, I guess, through all of them. Mm. Um, so I'm going to have to try to do sort of do one at a time. And um, it's going a bit slow. You know, it's uh, it's summer. It's been hot. Um mm. I've done some volunteering in various places uh, away from writing. So, yeah, I think when we spoke to Cam on the the live stream, he mentioned maybe you were volunteering at a dig or something uh, like yep. that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I was out in the wilds at that mm. point. How was that? Um, what does that mean? What does that mean? Yeah, like where were you in the wild? Uh 14 kilometers from the nearest town, I guess, in a small river valley. Uh that had probably 11,000 years worth of uh, occupation. Mm. And um, it was a small dig, but it was a, a lot of fun. But it was mm. it was hard, physically hard. I hadn't realized how much digging had worn me out over the years. Yeah, uh, when was the yeah. last time you had been on a dig before this one? Probably eight, nine years uh, mm. in uh, oh southern God. in Italy. Um, mm. But this was, yeah, this was um, tough stuff, tough going for sure. But I loved it. What what brought you back after? Oh, I love. I just love getting out into the field and 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 doing archaeology. It's mm -hmm. it, it's it's my idea of a vacation. <laughs> was this partnered with through like a, a university or was this a? Yeah, it was Brandon University was was doing the right. dig in Manitoba. Nice. Very nice. Hmm, that's awesome. Um, yeah. I'm a little intrigued because I mean I've I've read a little bit about what you're currently working on. I think I I kind of knew that you were simultaneously working on multiple projects. But when you're <laughs> when you're talking about seeing a way through or trying to figure out maybe working on one project at a time, like how does kind of navigating that decision and those process and that process look like? Well, I mean, right now um, I'm writing uh, No Life Forsaken, which is the follow-on to. Um, the God is not willing. And it's kind of, this is why I've, I'm sort of hesitant to describe progress because it's kind of two novels, two complete uh, and distinct storylines that I'm, I'm, I'm juggling at the moment. And I don't know if if it's going to end up as two short novels, um, like 175,000 word novels, two of them, um, or one big one. But I've certainly uh, concluded that I really hate writing trilogies. <laughs> okay. Absolutely that, hate it. I'll go on record. I don't think there's ever been a good trilogy. <laughs> Personally, <laughs> not a go. single one. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Yeah. What? What? What's gearing? I don't know. Getting in your gears about trilogies. Uh, the middle book. Um, I don't know. I mean, the ten book series. Uh, I was on fire for that one, and and so even though I knew that I had to wait till the till the tenth novel before I could sort of deliver the payoffs I wanted. Um, there were a lot of things in between that I could, act, you know, have fun writing. Mm. Trilogy is much more constrained. The second book is the bridge from the first book to the third. Uh, so it has a, a very specific function. 
and I kind of handcuffed myself because I, I, I made the second book occur on a different continent entirely from the first one. And, and then I have to sort of wrap the story around to, to basically bring some of the characters, at least, to the setting of the first one. Uh, and, and I guess in a lot of ways, a lot like Deadhouse Gates and Memories of Ice, that, that mm-hmm. there are two novels running in parallel. And then you have to sort of pull them together, uh, at least in time for the third novel. Mm. So that's kind of the challenge right now. Um, and I know I've got maybe 300 pages of Walk in Shadow. So that's sitting there waiting for me. Plus, I have two standalone uh, novels that I worked on during COVID, mm-hmm. uh, time travel novel, and then this other really strange little thing. So they're all sort of yeah hanging around. Now, this matter of kind of bridging between one and three, did you feel that? Have, are you feeling that too? Whilst you're when you, when you worked on Carcanus, the tri- the Carcanus trilogy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That, that's where my that's where my growing dislike of, of trilogies began. Is there a world, you know, I don't know anything about publishing or, you know, contracts or anything, but is is there a possibility that this becomes more than a trilogy? Like, is that is that a possibility sure. for you to just say, sure. like, I don't want to do three books. I want to do five or something. Uh, I could say that um, we'd have to we'd have to amend the contract. But sure. um, it, it may be that there will be four books in this trilogy. Yeah. OK. Now, you you didn't feel this way, though, right? With Dust of Dreams, where that was. You've, no, you've said two no. and two and one kind of between the last two books, but they are so massive and super. I feel like, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. No, that was absolutely fine. Um, I, I knew that that was the the cliffhanger novel because it was the first half of a very big novel. Yeah, great segue, Josh. Uh, that was a, an early <laughs> question I had um, about how, like, I know we've talked about earlier your vision for the entire series. When you thought about it the whole time, was nine and ten always? Did you always know the scope of that story would uh, yeah, probably have yeah. to span across two? Yeah, it, it had to be. Um, I mean, a reader is investing in you know the first eight books. If it were the first nine books before you get to the place where you can we can sort of set up the payoff, that last book is would always, to my mind, always feel uh, too short. Mm-hmm. Um, not enough to sort of sustain the the momentum of the previous nine novels. But uh, doing it this way, knowing how the eighth book was going to end, nine and ten seemed to be the the, the logical way of uh, structuring um, the payoffs uh, at the end. Because there is, I mean, the, the ninth book is a lot of setup for that payoff. And there's a lot that has to happen there. I think it's interesting, like, uh, I don't know, two thirds or three quarters of the way through Dust of Dreams, you can feel you can feel that momentum begin to kind of build and, you know, knowing we have another book, we know it's building into that last book. Was, was there any sort of like different mental space of writing 10, knowing that your foot was already on the floor, like, and you didn't have to like build up really to anything. Cause we already did a bunch of build up in the, you know, 300,000 words before this. Um, the, I think there was a sense of uh, once I finished the ninth book that uh, I needed to do at least a small amount of, of, pausing um, and refueling in order to carry through that storyline uh, for the 10th book. So that that was the time when I went to Mongolia and went on to that disastrous archaeology mm-hmm. dig mm-hmm. that nearly killed me. Yeah. So, <laughs> so by the time I got back from that, and then, I mean, I, I landed in London from Moscow, right in the middle of the, um, the SARS epidemic. And I immediately got sick at that point. No. And... Um, 
so I'd already been sick in, in Mongolia, but then I got, I got more sick, a lot more sick yeah. in, in the UK. But once that was sort of had cleared, um, then I did feel a, a definite sense of urgency. You know, that any, any kind of brush with mortality will do that. <laughs> and so I really wanted to make sure that I got the 10th book out. And that was sort of uh, my singular obsession uh, for that period, uh, eight, nine months, something like that. Did your time in Mongolia at all influence how you depicted like the glass desert and a lot of the mm. Klants region? Um, no, uh, I have to think about that. Not much of the landscape, I don't think. Um, the step, the Mongolian steppe's really interesting. I was in the north, okay, so I was not mm. in the desert part. Um, you know, thinking Gobi Desert and that kind of thing. That's that's a whole different landscape. This was uh, quite a, a northern uh, temperate uh, landscape. That actually had a lot more trees than I expected. Most of the hilltops still had trees, hmm. even though the the, uh, the Mongolian uh, herders would be, I guess, almost every year um, harvesting some trees down uh, to build their winter uh, houses. So clearly, they 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 were doing it in a sustainable fashion because hmm. there was always trees to be found. Hmm. So no, it was more. I mean, there are interesting physical details about that landscape, but a lot of it was very familiar to, say, southwest Saskatchewan, where, where I'd worked, mm. uh, or even even where I was this last summer um, in southwest Manitoba. Mm. That that valley that uh, I worked at was very similar. You could have picked that up and stuck it in, in northern Mongolia, and it wouldn't have looked very different. Uh, the only difference was the, the, the creek um, that was running through the valley. Uh, I think was quite severely polluted. Uh, I didn't look it, but um, there's enough farmland around there that was probably pumping a fair bit of toxins in. Whereas in Mongolia, you could walk across the trout in those streams. There were so many trout, and trout need clean water. So that was different. Hmm. Speaking of Kalans, I I was curious to just ask you a specific question about that area. I I don't know if I could describe it well, but I do feel that um, the way you establish history and, and kind of build that region out to me is a little different than how you went about um, establishing the settings um, in, in other parts of the world. And I'd be curious if that was, you know, something purposeful you're doing and maybe what what kind of motivated you to to approach that region in a different way. You mean sort of uh, east, east? Um, yeah, east of Litharis? Yes. Yeah, yeah where yeah. everything takes place? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I wanted it to feel different in that it's, it's kind of a godless environment. Mm. So some of that sort of natural, I don't know, uh, earth spirit kind of stuff that's present everywhere else would not be present here. And it, it was the absence of that um, life force, if you will, um, that left the civilizations that were present there uh, so dysfunctional, sort of like our world, um, you know, where, where most of the West is, is in many respects um, a place without spirit. And you know, there have been consequences to that environmentally. So it made sense that uh, I would have to put the setting in something, you know, something along those lines. And that would feel different. So I'm, I'm glad you, you caught a sense of uh, a change there in terms of the landscape. Uh, speaking of the, the godlessness uh, <laughs> of, 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 yeah, uh, of that area, was the 
the idea of having the Forker LaSalle god be one that was taken down by the Forker LaSalle thinking that they know better than their god, was that inspired by anything specific? Or is that kind of just like, like you were saying, this kind of generalized, like, Western, again, godlessness? Um, well, I mean, a lot of the, the Western history in our world, you know, the Enlightenment uh, was very much, uh, you know, when you finally have philosophers pronouncing that God is dead, um, it has it has reached that certain point of thinking. So yeah, I wanted, I wanted to explore that idea of worshippers actually overseeing the, the decimation or, or the, the end of their God hmm. and the end of their faith. And where would that take them from there? And it basically takes them to elevating uh, each other or themselves uh, to take over that role, which is you know, disastrous because humans, even in Fort Cruz Sale, uh, are flawed. Yeah. And there's this interesting kind of, uh, I guess, irony in the Forker LaSalle in the end, trying to use the crippled God to, mm -hmm. you know, take his power um, and use it against the rest of the world. It's, that's that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have other questions, but India, Josh, I, I did want to open the uh, gesture your way. I'm not I, uh, I guess when you were wrapping up the series, how did you like, I guess, how did you decide which characters that you wanted to bring to the end? Because there are so many main characters, like everyone kind of has their their moment. So was it just like how their story ended? It just ended up there? Or was there something more that you were thinking of when you were bringing? Um, well, because because it's it. Yeah, OK, it's a, it's a 10 book series and there's a, there's a, a sense of completion. Um, to the central arc or plot line, there was going to be no way to wrap up everybody's story. And nor would I want to, because, you know, the 10 books, just like Cam's six books are, they're just uh, excerpts from a history, a, a, an ongoing story, uh, which is the story of the lives of all the characters. And so we visit them for a time and then we move on. Um, but there were, there, I think there was maybe, um, I had a list somewhere of the characters that I needed to uh, give a proper send off to, and then it was simply a question of of juggling things so so I could do that in in a fashion that that kind of made sense. But also by the time you're getting to the end of the book, I think I think by the time of the prologue or epilogue, I am structurally backing out of the series, so it's a, a mirror image to Gardens of the Moon's opening. Mm -hmm. So that's how it backs out. When you made that list of things that you have of people that you have to end with, was mm -hmm. it based on your favorite characters or like just did you have to like like I don't know? Um, I don't know about favorite, but more a sense of okay, these are the ones that have earned their place on that you know on that last page, if you will, um, for for themselves, and and each of them would be representative of many of the other characters in the books that we didn't um, follow through to the end. So they, they, they sort of carry that extra burden, if you will. And then it was a question of, of really sort of slowing everything down um, to sort of um, immerse myself in, in, those, in those moments for those characters and, and making sure that the writing did what I wanted it to do. And that was, that's, that, was the, that was the thing that had me nervous. By the time I'd reached about the last, I, when I figured I had about 150 pages to go, I started getting very nervous because I had all these scenes that had been sitting in my head. Um, give you examples. Um, uh, Tavor uh, on the battlefield and that final emotional release 
I had that scene. I had the scene of the Marines on the hilltop and the lines they deliver when they start laughing. So these things were sitting there. Um, and I, I had Gessler and Stormy and, and, um, and the two dogs and all of that kind of stuff. So then it was a question of, you know, can the writing, can the writing sustain the, sustain my sense of the impact that I wanted to deliver? So it, it then became sort of almost a, a class in writing, uh, mm -hmm. the craft of writing. And that really slowed me down. And that was okay, because uh, I think slowing down helped. I think it made it, uh, it, it sort of, it was the best I could pull off, basically. Um, and it wouldn't matter, you know, if, if it took me two hours to, to pull off the scene, taking 10 hours wouldn't have made any difference. The two hours um, were the best I could do. And so once I knew that, then I could move on to the next scene and all the rest. But there's also, I mean, the scene with um, the toys, with the children, which was early on. Mm -hmm. So those things are, you know, you invest a lot in, in building up to those moments. And then when you get to those moments, then it's, it's a, the, the self-doubt creeps in. Mm -hmm. And uh, you got to fight that off and, and just try to think in terms of structure and sentence structure and craft and all the things that, you know, as a beginning writer, were the first things and the hardest lessons I learned way, way, way back. And to, to actually, in a sense, return to that and stay disciplined enough um, mm -hmm. to follow that through. If that makes sense. As much as it could, you know. <laughs> but um, I, what else? Oh, my gosh. There's one more thing I wanted to ask to like about this. But then I was listening and I forgot. Well, India, um, what, what were your favorite scenes? Oh, um, easily Stormy and Gessler mm. were that was like probably my was the most surprisingly emotional scene that I felt because I wouldn't have ever been like yeah those are the ones that i'm gonna mm. cry over <laughs> and i really loved the epilogue especially well obviously i've always been obsessed with absalar um i don't know what it was i really don't i just like her journey and then she was just gone and i was like damn it mm. um so mm. to have like an actual i guess like like touch of an ending was really mm -hmm. fulfilling mm. um i do remember my question quickly okay good um, thank you. You brought me back. <laughs> so when you say you were like kind of freaking out about 150 pages, was it because you only had 150 pages or because you were like, I have no. so many pages? No, no, no. It, no, I, I had no idea there was going to be 150 pages. What happened was in the, in the telling of the story, you're approaching those particular moments and the closer you get, the closer you get, right? How so, do you know? How, how do you decide? Um, well, Okay. Um, I had to. And this okay, might be to, a weird question. Like, I don't know if this. No, is no, no, no. Um, okay. So let's. Uh, I mean, obviously, we don't have to worry about spoilers. Okay. So. <laughs> yeah. No, we yes. don't. No, no we don't. don't. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So Tavor's scene after her. Well, her speech to the to the mm. regulars. Oh, too good. And but also, um, I had it. It took a while to get to that point for obvious reasons. Um. But I wanted the cracks to start showing. And I think the first crack shows when the children uh, have come to the army and uh, she takes the, the knife that Tahol had given her. I think it was Tahol or Breeze, somebody. Um, or male, actually. Yeah, I was going to say. The god male. Bug, yeah. And she, she has a line, something along the lines of, you know, haven't you bled me enough? I think something like that. So that's kind of the first crack uh, in her armor. And so... As, as one writes, you're setting these up to be incremental and they're building to, you know, yeah. that scene is 
the physical metaphor of the scream that's coming mm. from her, right? So where she's she, so where she's physically wounding herself in 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 an effort to as an act of sacrifice. And so then there's I knew that I was going to have to bring uh, her brother in because I was planning on almost a, a repetition of uh, the Phyllis and Tabor scene yeah. in the end of yes. House of yeah. Chains. Yes. So I needed to to build up to that point. But then between that, there's a scene where we get the other side uh, of Tavor that is a lot more, I guess, surprising because it's so vulnerable, mm. uh, yeah. where she complains you know, or uh, says something about her matted hair underneath her helmet, I think. Mm. And that's where Fiddler, I think, is there. And he says something, and then he just goes off and weeps. Mm-hmm. So these are these were sort of the incremental moments that were all building up to that inarticulate cry, that was that was going to be, I guess, that first and last in some ways um, revelation regarding Tavor, and because I had not done any of her point of view all the way through, I had to do it through these scenes like that. Mm-hmm. So from from other points of view, and if you choose as your other points of view um, to some extent some of the most uh, empathetic characters, then that that reflects on her, you know, at least for the reader. That's the hope anyways. Yeah. That some of the feeling that, say, uh, Fiddler felt at that point um, is now directed towards Tavor. And so those things needed to be built into the character in order, at least in, to my mind, to make that inarticulate cry at the end uh, as emotionally powerful as it, as it could be. I love all of the parallels that you're bringing up from like the beginning to the end because obviously we we did pick up on those and it was so satisfying mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. the Tavor and Perrin like it's me oh I'm not gonna kill you mm-hmm. this time <laughs> so good yeah and and you know her her first words to her brother of course that was the other thing that was, mm-hmm. that was sitting there for uh years in my writing um really yeah 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 because it it, it was going to uh, it's going to. Uh, the intent was it would force the reader into reevaluating everything that's gone before. Because by the time the reader gets to the end of uh, House of Chains, fourth book, your understanding of Tavor is is uh, pretty limited and probably fairly negative. Um, even though she was faced with a choice of either seeing her sister executed uh, or or throwing the dice um, and yeah. getting her to the mines uh, with. Uh, Bowden uh, there to uh, ideally um, save her and retrieve her. And of course, that all goes horribly wrong. Um, so that's set up so early on that um, there needs to be an answer to that uh, thematically within the story. Absolutely. Um, and so the last of the, the the siblings is the one who has to you know approach her. And that's the only person to whom she could say the words that she says, right? Right. That I lost her. Yeah. Mm. Mm. What a moment. That, yeah, that was just, that was, I think, especially for, I don't want to speak for Peter and Josh, but for me and AJ, I would say that was, we really appreciated that scene. Um, I also appreciate it. I thought it was very good. Yeah. I've been waiting for that. That Tavor, so have I. that Tavor moment since book four. Mm-hmm. And I, India, I don't want to be 
<laughs> rude, but I will say you did really hate Tavor for a while after that. Exactly. I needed <laughs> that. Good. I needed That's that good. apology no, yeah. from Tavor. I needed yeah. I needed closure from yeah, yeah, Tavor yeah. too. Wow. Yeah. And That's I good. got and I did get that. Like it oh yeah. That too was just insane. Mm-hmm. Um well, I mean, it's the most enigmatic characters are the ones that I yeah. think stay with the reader mm-hmm. uh, the longest, where you, you're, you're not quite sure of their footing. Yeah, they're uh, just in your head. Yeah, in your head. Right. And, and so it, it's this lingering question. And then if if the story that, that you're reading can can deliver those small telling details, not a lot of them, but just enough of them, hmm. so that when something finally breaks... Uh, with that character and is revealed, it has the fullest impact. Yeah. I feel like Ganos being the only one she could really open up to is like, just really retroactively colors every other scene she was in before that, where she's not showing this kind of emotion to any, anybody, any of her closest people. Um, she just only needed her, her, you know, her brother in that moment. That's yeah. just really, really powerful. And, and yeah, and, and that's that's foreshadowed because she shows it briefly mm-hmm. um, to Fiddler. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure it's Fiddler. That's the lead up to that. Yeah, I think uh, staying with character stuff, but less um, like characters that we see to the end. There was a time. Oh man, I don't remember if it was Midnight Tides or if it was like Bone Hunters when we were talking where you said sometimes there will be a character who you are surprised continues like showing back up or you're surprised by the things that they're doing within the story. Um, and I think now that we're like done, you know, all this whole, the whole series was there, is there any specific character that stands out to you as like kind of you being surprised at where they, they kind of ended up or, or the things that they have done throughout like the whole the series? Yeah, I'd say, I'd say, I'd say Carsa for sure. Really? Um, oh, absolutely. Really? You start and, a whole book form writing all about Carson, and and yeah. you weren't expecting him to end up where he ends up. No, I did not God expect in the last him. twenty pages. I did not expect him to end up where he ended up. And wow. how does it feel now, writing a whole? <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, yeah. <laughs> I know it's not entirely about it, but you take my point. Yeah. No, I mean, and that's in some ways. Um, that's why I haven't even got to Carson yet. Mm. That the first two books of the trilogy um, are not. And there's discussions about Carsa, but even especially in the sec- second book, the <laughs> storyline is. Josh doesn't know that. <laughs> I think he's just learning. I thought they were called the witness books because it was all Carsa POV. That is what I had convinced oh, myself. Oh God, no. no, 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 no. Wow. All right. No, there's no, there's no Carsa in the first two books. That's insane to me, <laughs> Josh. Yeah. Honestly, I'm surprised you would expect that, having just read. <laughs> yeah, having having read all of these. Yeah, you think? Well, I mean. Bear in mind, the last time you you saw Carsa was in was in the Crippled God. Mm-hmm. That's a full circle too, because the the dying man he picks up is is the one that you meet in in Memories of Ice. Um, yeah, AJ so, picked up on that. Yeah, yeah. So f- fully tied into I think it's Munug is his name. Fully tied into the the consequences of worshiping a a, a wounded crippled god. Mm. So. And Carson, of course, rejected uh, uh, the crippled god mm-hmm. when when he had the opportunity to to pick up uh, Rulad's sword. So yeah, it was surprising that there was there was this other side of emotional maturity, I guess, mm-hmm. in Carson that came out in that final scene uh, in the tenth book, and some of the things he says there. Yeah, and those those things were kind of the they're they're all. If you want to think of the thematic setup for the trilogy I'm working on right now, 
it's Karsa's last lines in, in The Crippled God. Hmm. That'll be a hint for people. Maybe we can <laughs> piece it together. Yeah. <laughs> That's so So did you think, I mean, I, I, I guess to, to speak to you from 2000 and whatever it was when you were writing House of Chains, like where did you, did you think Karsa was like just a House of Chains character or did you feel like he would kind of like fizzle out? Uh, well, no, I knew, I knew he was going to face uh, Rulad. Okay. Along with the Carrium. So then it was a question of, well, if I'm going to bring him that far along in this story, um, I can't just completely drop him. Um, mm-hmm. He has to he has to come back and, and haunt the pages for a bit longer. And then when he met Samar Dev, his storyline took off at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. She was crucial. Although oddly, the scene in, what is it, Toll the Hounds? When he, when he runs into that traveling slaving caravan. Yeah, and, yeah that's Toll the Hounds. And, yeah, and mm-hmm. takes down the leader there. Yeah, that was that was a pivotal moment for for Carson's development, because mm-hmm. um, that's one where basically he didn't use his sword; he just he spoke the guy to death <laughs> yeah. in a sense. We never get to talk about that scene that much. Uh, the most Mad Max energy from <laughs> a scene mm-hmm. ever. It's so incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, can I ask, I want to ask a question now that we've gone through the whole thing. I, I think I asked the first few interviews a lot about your process, but now having seen it start to end, the two characters that I'm most obsessed with, I think, are Stormy and Gessler, you know, because they're incredible. But more because I want to know if when you were writing, you wrote Gardens of the Moon, and then 10 years later, you wrote Dead House Gates. Did you think to yourself, I'm, a sh- I, I'm positive the answer is no, but it is you, so you, there's a chance. Did you think to yourself, well, they've got to go through the Warren of Talon because we're going to meet a witch later who's going to get really good at using the fire magic to kill the special creatures in book 10 to make way for the heroes to get to the top, but then we have to kill her, so they have to be immune to fire. Like, was that there, or did you just keep going to yourself, oh, I have a fix for that problem? <laughs> um... Man, I don't remember. Um, <laughs> Gessler and Stormy were interesting. Um, I think they popped onto the page in Deadhouse Gates, right? Yes. That's where they show up. Yeah. As two Marines. They As are, two you, Marines. It is so casual about it. <laughs> yeah, it, it's extremely casual. And and they're in a bar, aren't they? Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and so they run into um, Duiker, I guess. No, they, ru- uh, they run into Duiker and the mage. Cult. Yeah, Cult. Cult. Yeah. 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 That's his name. Yeah. Um, and something about them um, just sort of sunk its 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 hooks into me. Their irreverence was something I I, I wanted to revisit over and over again. Um, and I you know within Dead House Gates, um, I knew that they would they would eventually have a run in with Coltane, and so I had to build up to that scene as well. So they are kind of they're almost an elaboration on a Joe Kamenite had um, <laughs> that were running through all the books. It was just a, a back and forth joke about a. Um, a recruiting officer in Gardens of the Moon in the, at the beginning who recruits Sari. Mm-hmm. And he shows up as a incidental character um, going throughout the entire series, especially when we get later to Cam's books, where he's moved up the ranks. And I think by that point, he's, he's a fist or something like that. <laughs> and, you know, every time magic happens, he just gets this ferocious headache. And, and so we just dropped him in there. Um, and he sort of carries... This, he's got his own story, none of which we ever describe. Um, and we wanted to sort of play with that idea that there are characters all throughout history that can have fundamental roles in, in events that occur, but whose lives we know nothing about. Hmm. And Gessler and Stormy were kind of 
an elaboration on that. Um, so they were going to pop in and out and pop in and out. And then we'd close in closer when through all their activities and actions, they are um, forced into a relationship with the Kachin Chamel. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there are plenty of, plenty of sort of thematic elements that, that are, that I attach to them, but I can't tell you, you know, when, when I knew, you know, what was coming. I don't, I don't remember. It's been way too long. To be honest, <laughs> I would have, I would have bet so much money that these were characters that had appeared in your games because nope. of, because so many of the characters who like have a secret, like, oh, they were an admiral back in the day or, oh, this, he was a general are, are people that had, you've talked about having been role played. So I would mm-hmm. have never guessed that they started off literally as two Marines. And at some point you went, well, no, they were, they're going to give them a fun backstory. That's <laughs> incredible to me. That, yeah. That's, but that, that's the joy of the writing process, right? If I, mm-hmm. if everything had already been mapped out, uh, I would have gotten bored and never finished 10 books. Of course. <laughs> right. Yes. I, I needed, I needed those, those open spaces for spontaneity for mm-hmm. for new characters to just show up and, and raise hell and, and entertain me as, as I'm writing them. Mm-hmm. Josh says like he can't read a book anymore now that is like actually like super interesting, I guess, because we like you could never ex- anticipate what was going on in the series. And for that, we it's like think a lot more. And now a lot of things seem like a little bit more thoughtless. <laughs> and that well, maybe I'm paraphrasing. But for me, I, I read a lot of very, very, um, I don't know, easy reads, I would say. Mm-hmm. And lately I've just been so disinterested because everything is just kind of like laid out and there's no real like I don't know guess or challenge and I never thought that I would ever in my life enjoy that like thinking while I'm reading but Mm. now because this this series was the only thing that I was reading for like years I really Mm. wasn't doing much side reading um and now I'm 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 finding myself in like a weird place where I don't really want to read anything and it's not like oh my god i'll never read again but i'm just it's like what do what do i read now Mm. because i'm not fully skewed all the way to this fantasy side like Mm -hmm. but i'm also definitely not in the place where i was reading like the same author who has the same story in like a different font Mm -hmm. you know (laughs) in a different font right yeah well okay um but those kind of stories um they have a value in and of themselves because it's, in fact, it's the familiarity that is the comforting aspect um, to exactly. a lot of these stories. So, uh, yeah, I wouldn't dump too heavily on that. Um, if you're Just recognizing, yeah, if you're recognizing the tropes and you're recognizing where it's going, there are other things that you can draw from that, from, from, from enjoying uh, or draw from the story that you hopefully will enjoy. For example, characters who throughout a series somehow always manage to to pull it off whatever it is they're doing um that can be fun in and of itself right mm-hmm. it, it comes down to sort of what it is you're looking for when you sit down to read and and that can change from day to day yeah I, and i think that is what this did like i think that reading this series did change what i'm what i'm inter- what i'm looking for now in a story which is bizarre because <laughs> i wouldn't have i just wouldn't have expected it. I wouldn't have expected to be like actually changed from read like not like oh my god my life has changed you know but like just like normal day to day things that I like are now like mm, well maybe I like other things. I think it just opened my mind more mm. like and expanded like what I'm interested in consuming mm. and it's 
it's right. cool. Well, you could try um, Umberto Eco's uh, Foucault's Pendulum if you want a real um, challenging novel, which is I also extremely How challenging. <laughs> How challenging, Steve? How challenging are we talking? <laughs> um, it's, it's fun. It's a lot of fun, right? Um, there's a, a tongue-in-cheek element that's running all the way through it in terms of the sheer absurdity of the complications of the storyline. Because it's all about conspiracy. The, and it's about, oh yeah, it, and it's <laughs> the rabbit holes are just everywhere. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. I've opened the Wikipedia, India, and ju- before you even get to the summary, there's many words that I don't know what they mean already. <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> Steve, you just want you just, uh, no. <laughs> Probably not. Probably not? Oh, well. <laughs> Maybe I'll see. I'll see. I'll take a recommendation from you any day, so. Well, um... There's some good uh, science fiction. Uh, there's um, Adrian Tchaikovsky's, uh, I think it's Children of Time. Children of Time is so Yeah, good. it's such a good book. Children of Time is so good. AJ's yeah. been advocating that that's what we do next, if I'm it's being really honest. Good. If I'm being honest on Mike, that's what AJ wants to do next. <laughs> it's, it's, it's good fun. And I think yeah. he's now got two or three that followed on that one as well. Yeah, yeah set in the same yeah story something like, like that. So yeah, like- that, that's a great book. So AJ's yeah. read every book in the main series. <laughs> no, I've only read the. First, I have the second one, and I'm actually probably going to read it on vacation when we when we go in a couple of weeks. But but the first one is is abs- it, one of my one of my favorite um, sci-fi yeah. premises, um, yeah. and the way that it approaches the storytelling. Um, yeah. What is it called? Very, Children of Time. Yeah, uh, it's really great. I also um, sorry. Now we're talking about Adrian Tchaikovsky for a moment. I would I would really highly recommend his uh, novella, I guess, uh, called Elder Race. Which, which is also just really, really great and kind of does a similar thing of, of the POV switching that Children of Time does. Um, but Elder mm. Race is like 130 pages or something. It's it's really short. It's so, it's so it's It gets in and gets out and does exactly what it needs to do. And I, I had a great time reading that. But anyway. <laughs> That's another thing. I used to get so frustrated at the, char- the POV changes in mm-hmm. these books. And now... When there's just one POV, I'm like, <laughs> what is everyone else doing and thinking? Yeah. <laughs> I I am reading a, a single POV book for the first time in, I don't know, f- six years, it feels like, mm-hmm. and I am dying. Yeah. But I'm like making myself do it because it's been so long. Yeah. Literally. I, wow, interesting. Yeah, I also had this kind of similar like... We finished the series and I'm just like, well, now what? And part of me was like, do I just go back and start reading Guards of the Moon again? It's I think it's really easy, especially over how long we read yeah. this series and how long it was like in our lives. I think it's really easy to that kind of become a consistent a consistency that you you crave. And so I can I, I really can understand people reading these this series like back to back to back. Mm-hmm. Um, Emotional security. Right. Yeah. Well, it's it's series. just like it is it is a consistent thing. And then once you read it once, you kind of know where it's going, you know, more like the broad stroke story wise. And so you can kind of read it a little deeper, but that's, but I, I've been having the same thing. And I was like, I need to read something kind of more literary. So I've been slowly chipping my way through Blood Meridian. Um, oh, wow. Which okay. is just so hard to read. It's, it's, yeah. it's short, but it is so dense. Uh, oh, Cormac McCarthy. Yeah. Okay. And my, my brother had read it a couple of years ago and I asked him, I was like, how, how did you read this book? He said, I read this one with this study guide. And he sent me this like study guide website um, wow. for like every chapter that will kind of like, you know, go back. Like um, there's like the No Fear Shakespeare books, which will like kind of break down, you know, Romeo and Juliet and all that stuff <laughs> uh, in like layman's language or whatever. But so, <laughs> so I've uh, I, I'm on like chapter three and it is it is 
it's a lot, but but that has kind of filled that the void of like this massive kind of series with a lot of stuff in it. Uh, I've gone to a smaller book, but yeah, we could try uh, Don DeLillo's The Names. Hmm. That's also that one's that one's sort of nice nice way to bookend uh, Foucault's Pendulum. Hmm. And if you wanted to sort of stay in that vein, you could do um, G.K. Chesterton's The Man Who Was Thursday as a trio of conspiracy books. That might be a lot of fun. Interesting. Conspiracy okay. books sound um, very fun. That sounds incredible. This is, sounds like a thrill. <laughs> you said you 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 know you've got multiple things going on right now. You've got you know you're working on on the Malazan stuff, the time travel stuff, your quote weird thing, which I'm very interested about. Um, but what <laughs> what have you found yourself kind of consuming alongside that stuff? And and uh, do you feel like you're trying to consume stuff that is like on the opposite side of the spectrum from whatever you're currently working on, or are you kind of trying to pull inf- inspiration from stuff? Um, hmm. I'm not reading nearly as much as I used to. Mm. And when I do read quite often, it's nonfiction. I've been watching a lot of documentaries, like a lot. Mm. So I'm not sure. I mean, when I do read fiction, it's usually science fiction. Um, generally, I like the stuff that's in space, mm. uh, getting me out there somewhere. And and yeah, uh, I guess, I don't know, for whatever reason, I'm not, I'm not sort of being hypercritical i'm just enjoying uh casual reading yeah um which is uh relaxing um, yeah i was gonna say i think that makes a lot of sense yeah yeah and then you know like the, the time travel novel is is a single point of view so stylistically it's extremely different from, from the other stuff i'm doing uh it's a it's a fairly natural mimetic voice uh, beginning at least in this world and then the other one is, yeah, the weird one. Yeah, I'm not going to talk much about that. Oh. One. Um, <laughs> Dang, the weird one. Yeah, it, it it's, it's it's extremely weird. Yeah. Um, oh, that's so tantalizing. Me more interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, no, but it's it's the plot is a simple adventure story, uh, as you might have read in oh the 1920s. Mm, okay. Um, so very traditional adventure uh, story, but it's talking about something a lot more complicated than that so but it's it's sort of it's being told in a fairly straightforward fashion of, of just rip-roaring adventure think h Ryder haggard's she or people of the mist um something along those lines which you know if you're going to go look at those things uh, I, I don't know if i'd recommend them i, I picked up she i have a, an old edition of uh she hardcover and my god the the casual racism and mm-hmm. misogyny and anti-semitism mm-hmm. is just it's so much in your face. It was really, really hard to, to continue reading. So yeah. I, I kind of abandoned the effort. Mm. I was going to say, Steve, I really appreciate that after talking with us nine times, you still are hopelessly optimistic when you just drop titles like, well, you know, like she, uh, <laughs> sure. I, who is, she, who, Love who, that are, one. yeah, I, isn't there a term for books of that era or am I thinking of yeah, that? Yeah, is it, they're, they're, is um, it Penny Dreadful or is that just what that show no, no, is called? No, okay, no, am I very, very wrong? Thank you for the looks. They're, um, oh what man, how would you describe them? They are, they emerge from the era of white man's burden and exploration mm. of, quote, deep, dark Africa. Mm. So you have a whole series of books like that. Um, and H. Ryder Haggard was, was one of the more... Um, popular and successful of them. So is the Great White Hunter, um, usually finding lost civilizations. Um, so even think of Conan Doyle's Lost World, that kind of stuff. So yeah, that, that was a whole sort of, it's kind of where the mindset of colonialism sort of works its way into 
sort of classic adventure stories. And um, I mean, you could probably include Kipling in some of that stuff, but you could also include um, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. So, you know, there, there's, there's a full gamut of um, approaches to that stuff and, and Burroughs and Tarzan and, and all of these books, which are deriving mostly from H. Ryder Haggard and Harold Lamb and Talbot Mundy and all these people who are basically using other parts of the world as, as um, exotic locales for, for their, their white adventurer to come, you know, storming in and save mm. the day. Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> Thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> so they are certainly are, uh, they are of their time. Let's mm-hmm. put it that way. Mm-hmm. I might be not into those. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I might, might pass. actually. Mm. <laughs> Well, you only made me more interested in it. Let the record show. In the weird. Um, in the weird? The weird book, yeah. not this stuff. <laughs> no, no, well, yeah, not this in particular, but I, I could, I don't know. It sounds like an interesting thing to interact with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, know? well, it, it's a novel that's specifically commenting on and that. And that's, what, that's that, what I was imagining. Yeah, on that canon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess I think about the concerns of this series and how you um, approach them. And I was like, oh, I'm sure you would approach the concerns mm-hmm. around this type of genre of fiction in well, a potentially I, interesting way. You know? Yeah, and this is why um, some documentaries are, have been really interesting. Do you know the, it's on Netflix, um, Lee Berger's, uh, who is a paleoanthropologist. Um, this is a site and it's called Rising Star Cave in South Africa. Mm. Do you guys know anything about that? Mm-mm. No, no, I do not. No, man. But the documentary... Dawn of Humanity. There it is. Mm. Okay. From the from Nova. No, I don't think that's it. It's on. It's definitely on Netflix. Maybe um, Unknown Cave of yeah, Bones. That's the one. Oh, there that it is. is just. I see. It. That's an absolutely amazing documentary. Mm. Um, and it basically poses the question of you know where does humanity begin? Because sick. This particular hominid species is is hmm. one that becomes extinct, but it's coexisting when modern humans are around. Hmm. And yet it seems to be displaying, despite having, you know, the brain capacity not much larger than a, a chimpanzee, it's displaying culture, hmm. like actual definable culture. And that really raises the question of these things that we, as anthropologists or whatever, or even beyond that in biology, that, that whole notion of, of what constitutes humanity. And generally it's defined as as evidence of culture of some form or another. So art, um, ritual, treatment of the dead. And you go back a bit further, tool making, stone tool making, all that kind of stuff. So th- these are sort of the, the signposts to um, sentience and, and humanity as such. Hmm. And yet it's turning out that, that a, we're not the exclusive owners of those, ca- those aspects of, of behavior. Hmm. And so that's pretty mind blowing. And so that, that's kind of thematically sort of where I'm exploring with this, this weirdo novel. But, <laughs> Steve, if you were given, you know, if someone said, I'm going to pay for you to take two years, go off and think, come back with one, what what do you think you would, do you have any ideas of where you'd want to do a documentary about or, you know, documentary? Yeah. If you, mm. say, so if you, if they just, wow. someone Good said, question. go for it in, you know, educate whatever, you know, stripe of humanity watches it. What are you educating us on? Wow. That's a hard question. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very sorry. <laughs> um, I'm not sure. Uh, I guess mm, probably it would be archaeologically oriented in mm-hmm. some fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I have a strong suspicion that some of the most interesting stuff that we could find related to 
the people of the new world, quote unquote, is all underwater. It's all off the coast. And mm. so that kind of exploration is not an easy thing to, to undertake. But there's also elements of rock art that I suppose interest me. I originally thought it would be fun to do a, a, a um, comedic uh, historical um, <laughs> documentary where I just make shit up. Oh, okay. Incredible. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I'm sorry to say, I don't know if we have the funding to back. Yeah, no, yeah. We, we can work on it. We can work on it. If I may loop around, sure. just I did want a quick touch on 9 and 10 again. Oh, uh, what, Malazan? Ugh. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. It's a little played out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll just see myself out. All I was going to say is to kind of build on the uh, uh, something you said about sentience and kind mm. of like... Um, attributes of sentience that maybe are not exclusively held to humans. Mm -hmm. um, it made me think about those themes in 9 and 10, not just relating to Kachane Shamal, but um, relating to other non-human characters in the book and animals. And I was curious about why maybe you chose to kind of explore those ideas in 9 and 10 and what life looks like outside of humans. Oh, wow. Um, well, there's a lot of sort of... Uh, almost science fiction related to Kachin Jamal, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, one has to sort of figure out, okay, how are how are basically velociraptors um, or raptors of some kind, dinosaur-style raptors, how will they be able to communicate? Because they don't have the larynx and the vocal cords or, or the mouth apparatus, the throat apparatus to, to do anything apart from the equivalent of birdsong. Um, so are there other ways in which to communicate? And so that's where that whole idea of uh, almost following on the lines of, of insects and ants and the release of, of uh, pheromones and all the rest mm -hmm. as, as a means of, of subtle communication. And so, you know, when, when you build that up, then you realize that the means of communication is going to shape that culture uh, fundamentally. But also there, there's that idea of, and I've seen this actually now in some more recent science fiction novels where you've got alien species that have um, uh, a single breeding mother. Uh, similar to uh, a queen bee, mm -hmm. and then they are able to create bespoke uh, offspring. So you know, some as workers, some as as soldiers, some as as drones, some as you know, nest uh, servants, and that kind of thing. So, in other words, genetically altering um, the nature of their offspring to specific tasks, mm -hmm. and that's where the Kachain Jamal Kel hunters came from. So it was just basically trying to build up a non-human civilization and trying to figure out. How is that actually going to work, especially without magic? So it's, it's, it, there's a lot of science fiction elements to to that kind of stuff. As for, I guess, in the tenth, ninth, and tenth books, are you referring to the wolves, for example? Yeah, I, I think about wolves. I think about Ben and Roach, and I just think about some other passages that stand out to me. They're not at my fingertips, though. So yeah, um, I've always been interested in the nature of domestication uh, and how how that actually um, comes about. So regarding wolves, dogs, all the rest, and, and the compact, if you will, that um, is established between humans and another species, and how quite often it's, um, at least initially, it's, it's beneficial to that other species, but the human attitude towards that species indicates that um, it, it's, you know, in the long run, it may not be beneficial at all. <laughs> So, you know, you're riding a horse into battle, um, you know, you've domesticated this animal and it carries you and then you take it into harm's way without a second thought. And, you know, to what extent is its understanding of the situation relevant at all to, to the actions that humans engage in? 
and I guess the brutal answer would be um, not relevant at all. Mm. But dogs, that I mean, dogs is they're interesting. They're interesting. Um, and my experience with that is is from the archaeology I did on on the plains. Um, when you're dealing with uh, pre-horse cultures, you know, archaic period, that kind of stuff, where I mean, there was a site called the Gray Site in Saskatchewan. It was exposed when uh, a dust storm just sort of stripped all the, the topsoil away, exposing all these bones. It's a four to six thousand year old site, and it was kind of a the details are kind of shocking. The men were ritually buried uh, in uh, fetal position on the hilltop, and the dogs that they had domesticated, uh, basically, the dogs at that point would be taking the place of, of horses in the sense, not that you ride them, but they drag things, they mm. carry things, they pull things. And so all their vertebrae would be compacted because they've been pulling heavy weights um, behind them. But those dogs were, were, were ritually buried as well. So uh, given a very high status within, within that particular culture. Mm. And what was appalling was that the women and children were basically thrown off the edge of the, uh, of the hill. Perfect. So they weren't ritually buried at all. Hmm. And so that, that points to a particular type of culture, which is not quite painting the, you know, the blissful noble savage uh, notion in a good light. Hmm. So I, I, and, and the, I mean, they, these things are what interests me and what I like to explore when, when I'm writing um, fiction. Well, that's very interesting. Um, I have another question about nine and ten, but mm -hmm. I guess I was bullied by my no. co-host. <laughs> no, I did want to check in please, to see if anyone Peter. else had yes, any yes, nine yes. and ten. I just want to say, maybe the favorite thing I've ever read, and I have no thought other than telling you that, they, as you're aware, Steve, you can write a darn good book <laughs> when you put your mind to it. Uh, the Spinach Durov pounding people's shields so hard that they just fall and then someone takes their place all just so his speech is that much cooler is my favorite thing I've ever read. <laughs> there is no, um, there is no like, academic reason it's just it just makes my heart sing and i love it so much uh <laughs> and it's fantastic that's interesting um yeah we haven't even mentioned the the whole um the shore, the shore and everything it's because that's it's, what it's, my next question well, is about. <laughs> it's because it's its own book steve yeah, and you it's were its like well thing. i guess i just need to throw it in here because <laughs> and it's so good it's really good yeah Okay. I don't know how you made me care about pithy and brevity because <laughs> i did not i didn't think about those two and then all of a sudden, I would have died for them. <laughs> what what I was going to say was about this very thing. Uh, um, I uh, I think the first time I read through the book, the, the 9 and 10, I was a little at sea about why the Karkana stuff was in there. And I've spoken about that, and I didn't necessarily connect with it. This time, I was all all eyes on Carcanus the whole time. And in fact, I was most interested in that element of the story. And I was curious. I mean, I really enjoyed it. And, and I was curious about maybe, you know, of not, not necessarily why you included that storyline, but I was curious about, because if I'm not mistaken, at the time you knew that you uh, were going to write books about Carcanus. And I was curious about um, how that, if there was a, an influence there or how that affected it or whether this Carcana storyline was always a part of your vision for the ending. No, it, I don't think it was. Um, I think it was generated when I was writing um, Toll the Hounds. And I think when I introduced the character of Endis Salan and, and Spinnock and, and a few others, um, 
there was something compelling about them that, that was, and, and their backstories um, started to sort of haunt me. Um, I knew I had to deal with Mother Dark's turning away. Um, and that's what Toll the Hounds was all about. And I would have to draw, uh, make a conclusion uh, of that particular sequence and, and uh, history, cultural history for the Tai Stan D. But no, those characters then, they, they, they kind of captivated me. And then the fact that they were talking and, and reminiscing about Carcanus, sort of, uh, it felt like there was enough there that if, if I wanted to delve in there, um, you know, into that storyline, that, that back history, I could do so. And then when you, when you get to the whole shoreline stuff, um, the character, oh man, I can't remember his name. Who's the guy with the sword? Um, y- are you talking about Yet and Derek the watch? <laughs> the watch? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> the guy with the sword. The watch. <laughs> too many years, too many years. Sure. Um, he just he just exploded onto the page mm-hmm. um, as this really interesting, terse, terse character. I remember knowing somebody who was a, a jaw grinder. You know what I mean? Um, he would he'd be so constrained in his behavior, regardless of his emotions, that you could you could hear his teeth grinding. Oh, jeez! Right, and it, it built the muscles up around the jawline and stuff, which <laughs> changed the shape of his face and everything. And I always thought that was kind of interesting as a uh, physical detail that really can um, indicate that there are volumes behind all that silence uh, and that inability to sort of engage with other people. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so I threw that in to, to help sort of um, plant that character when we first see him um, on another shore, uh, the shore of Lotharis, which of course foreshadows, I turn, it turns out, foreshadows the shore <laughs> that he eventually goes to. Um, so yeah, he, he just sort of took off. And then the Hust sword, I realized that I could write whole freaking novels just on the Hust weapons. Yeah, they're so, there's they're so awesome. much there. They're so cool. And so there was suddenly, you know, it all started unfolding that, that, yeah, I had plenty here that I could post 10 book series that I could d- delve into, uh, which is what the Carcanus uh, trilogies en- ended up doing. So, um, so yeah, it was kind of, it was preparations for that trilogy occurring on the page uh, of a 10 book series and yeah, kind of running in parallel, but then the final scenes of uh, uh, Yet and Derek and twilight and all of those characters then became almost a dreamscape for carcanus stories mm. through one character uh, i don't know if you guys have read the carcanus stuff yet but not yet through one character anyways um that character uh ends up having visions um of the very scenes you've just read you know in, oh. on that shoreline and, and they're blending uh the the time is the sense of time is breaking down but the place remains the same. So yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff that, that happened there. Um, and yeah, that, that March of uh, spin off the I mean, I guess I just wanted that, um, that cadence, um, that savage beat that was sort of representative of everything that the Tyst ND had lost mm-hmm. for so long, that kind of uh, energy uh, that was backing um, their determination to do something uh, was simply all gone. But this, of course, is post um, Toll the Hounds. So mm-hmm. it's being uh, resurrected uh, and reborn mm. in them. And so Spinock, yeah, he uses the sword on the shield to to wake that stuff up. 
I know we spoke about it a little before. I would be curious, um, specifically about the Carcanus trilogy, and I'd be curious to know whether if there was any knowledge that you feel like or lessons you learned from ending this series that you feel like you are keeping in mind as you approach wrapping up the trilogy and potential not wit- not trilogy trilogy uh, 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 about Carsa. Um, no, I get the lessons one learns writing 10 books, uh, three and a quarter million words, whatever. I can't really see a way of pulling that across to um, a trilogy. They're very, very different lessons because you're, you're investing for the long haul. Um, and some people may think of trilogies as, as a long haul, but I don't. So uh, it seems short. Um, and so I've actually been constraining my style to uh, make even the volumes of the trilogies shorter than my average uh, pre-existing hmm. 10 book series, shorter than all the, uh, all the other books. And it may be a product of age as well. Um, maybe I'm slowly, you know, winding down or burning out. Mm. But I don't feel I don't feel um, obliged in any sense to deliver a three hundred thousand word novel ever again. So you know, um, it Good took a lot you. out of me. So yeah, um, mm-hmm. yeah. now now I guess it's it's more as if um, having done the ten books, I'm now. Uh, taking a different approach to, to novels in general. And they're, they oh. are, they are more pithy, I guess. And, and bre- brevity. Hey, so. oh, there it is. There it is. <laughs> I think that that makes a lot of sense. I think I, um, in terms of like, I mean, you said, you, you know, maybe you're winding down or whatever. Um, you may be, but I would say the amount of people making content quote unquote about the book of the fallen specifically i feel like has only increased in the last few years has that been a weird kind of like very uh circle to square in terms of like well i finished these books in 2011 and now i'm kind of moving on to other stuff and now all of a sudden you know 10 years later people are like hey this is a series i'm reading let's read it along because you're very involved with that stuff so so you're you're at least you know passively consuming some of it I, i would imagine oh yeah yeah um it's 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 peculiar yeah um and, and I've been watching um, the PLC DLC, uh, yeah, with uh, Jeff DLC? and Lana, yeah. Oh man, they are so they're I mean, they are funny. They are funny. <laughs> yeah, an absolute blast to be watching. And so there's a nostalgic element for me mm. to, to to just get a sense of, of people experiencing these books for the first time. Mm-hmm. And you know, in many respects, reminding me of, of stuff that that I'd done that I'd since forgotten. Sure. Lots of details, so yeah, I, I'm I'm constantly astonished that the the series um, seems to be at least displaying uh, enough longevity that that will at least hopefully um, uh, outlast me. Hmm. Yeah, I would say a lot of the themes and stuff throughout the books, and even probably themes that you didn't even like mean to put in the books, I think are widely applicable, like for an extended you know uh, uh, life lifetime or a. Uh, lifespan i mean the intent was always to be as timeless as possible sure right but there's only so much you can do because you know language itself changes and mm-hmm. evolves um and that was a great example of when i pulled up pulled down that that age rider haggard which i guess was written in 1914 something like that sure. no actually maybe 1907 somewhere around there and um the opening line um i read it out loud to my wife and and then uh reread it as an edit 
and you know I, I reduced it to like six six words. <laughs> it was like twenty five words. words. <laughs> sure. Um, and that's what happens is is we 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 contract uh, with language, um, and so stylistically everything will will eventually date itself mm. in some fashion or another. So there, there's really no escaping that kind of stuff. But thematically, you're right. You know, you that that should be timeless. That should be universal. Um, mm-hmm. And certainly, when you look at you know the works that have survived uh, in in literature, um, it's for that reason. Uh, there is a universality in his examination of the human condition that stays with us. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I'll read him again. That's <laughs> you know. Yeah. Do you have any? So we we got done with our live stream, and there was a lot of talk about rereading. Do you have any? I'm uh, obviously have you ever, you've never read your own books, I guess I would assume no, not. Yeah, no. that yeah. So, um, but I'm sure many people have talked to you about the rereading process. Is there anything you would any words of wisdom you would impart on someone mm. of things to try and engage with in a different way on their second read through of the series? Well, I think you mentioned it early on. Um, the fact that you know what's coming um, mm. means you don't have to. You know, spend a lot of sort of mental energy trying to predict or or trying to work out you know how things fall into place and all the rest. So uh, with rereads, you can remember I, I, very early on I described this as the world's longest short story because mm-hmm. that's kind of how I wrote it. Mm-hmm. So in the same fashion that um, one might read a short story, you pay a lot more attention to the language. Um, and so on a reread, um, you're kind of invited to do just that. You can. You spend time on the language, um, and, and you know, then have more interest in, in sort of the, the subtextual stuff uh, that's going on, the establishment of, of symbolic details uh, of setting or whatever, and then you can see all those things can loop around and all the rest. And that's what's all going on in the background when you know, while on a first read, you know, you're you're attaching to the plot specifically, right, to find out what's going on, right, not just the plot, but also those world building details that allow you to sort of ground yourself in the story. But if that stuff's already sort of already present within you, then um, yeah, um, find all the places where, you know, I, I did a blatantly obvious foreshadowing. <laughs> but of course, it would never be obvious because if you're reading it the first time through, you're not aware of what's being foreshadowed. Or not. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Josh had brought up the live stream, and um, as you're aware, we had talked to Cam a bit, um, mm-hmm. which was a great conversation, by the way. It's <laughs> it great to talk to. And uh, he had mentioned that uh, you might be gaming currently. You might be uh, in, a, in a tabletop game at the moment, no. or, or you were really? at the time, or <laughs> is this a surprise to you? No. <laughs> no, he just made that up. <laughs> okay. Okay, because he said that, and I was like, oh, wow, that's really interesting. Like, I had thought to myself, because I remember talking to you some other time, and you were like, yeah, I don't really know if I have the time or energy, really, to to, to role play. No, right I don't. Now, but... I don't. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> that's very funny. No, I don't know where he got that from, but yeah, it does sound like he just made it up. <laughs> well, all right, there's that whole question, then. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, I'm fresh out, then. I, I, I am about to. I, I have some kind words, I'll say, but I did... Um... Did did want to ask my co-host if uh, they had anything else they anything else in their mind other than questions? No, I mean I think I mean, we said it uh, before we started recording, but I mean Steve, thank you so much for for donating your time to the show. It was really uh, I mean especially when we had only released eight episodes talking uh, about the the first book, um, you know, being so generous with your time then and 
continuing to be so uh, uh, throughout. Uh, it's, you mean, it's, you, mean you, did, you didn't mind me showing up and chewing you guys out every now and then? <laughs> no, please. I, I think it's it's a it's a it builds character. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, no, character but I think, development. I think I think that stuff's good because I I certainly didn't want to, for the most part, think really hard about you listening to the show because I just wanted to you know give honest honest opinions and feedback and our you know we, Pete and I had talked a lot and I guess all of us have talked a lot about how the show is about our experience mm-hmm. reading through the series regardless of whether you know we are currently in, enjoying a piece of it or not or whatever mm-hmm. regardless of who's listening so but no I, I appreciate you coming on and being and you know being as honest about your feelings as we were about ours I think it's only fair so I I, you know, I think that stuff was really it, it was it was always great to talk to you whether you were chewing us out or not <laughs> Try to imagine getting halfway through or stopping at book six Mm. and thinking of the your takeaway at that point Mm. if you were to not continue reading versus your takeaway having completed Mm -hmm. the ten books. Mm -hmm. Because it's it's one of the things that you know was was always my hope was that the reader would stay with me because the the answer to so much of the previous eight books is found, or nine books, is found in the 10. Mm-hmm. And so if you never get to that, then you've only got sort of half of the experience, right? Uh, and, which leads you in a completely wrong direction, <laughs> right. as, as you guys know, right? Because mm-hmm. the ending takes that tragic element and flips it on its head. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. there are tragic things occurring, but ultimately it's not about failure, it's about success. Mm-hmm. I would say if I legitimately stopped after book six, I think your thesis of it's a bunch of short stories would be my main takeaway. Mm -hmm. Because I think I would really struggle to see, I think book six is a great book to pose that at, because I really don't think I would have any meaningful connection I could make to span all six books at that point. Mm -hmm. I think I would just be left with like a series of vignettes. Mm. Yeah. Very good vignettes, but I would be like, well, that happened. I don't really know what to make of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which um, is crazy that you're, that's, you know, three fifths of the way through the books, you have absolutely no idea where you're going, which to be fair, after book eight, I didn't know we were going either. So, <laughs> yeah. Really play, yeah. But yeah. yeah, but I think you're right, Josh. I mean, I mean, seven is kind of where we start. You know, we go, we exactly. bring Lethris into like the, the present day, yes. and then we tie that all that stuff in. So I, I think that's, I think you're right. That six is a good spot to be like, what if I stopped before I actually knew why five was there? You know, besides yeah. to mm-hmm. be like Troll mm-hmm. Sengar and also just like a very good book. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I think um, when we t- talked to AP, AP had also expressed that that kind of frustration of like you're expressing these feelings about a thing that that'll be answered in the next chapter. And like, that's a clearly, you know, I think a flaw of the show and maybe just a flaw of kind of talking about works like this in general is like, there will always be a point where you're not, unless it's like a movie or something where you can kind of watch the entire thing at one time. It's like, you're, you're, you're always going to be talking about a thing without having the entire picture in front of you. Right. Yeah. I think it's a very, uh, slippery thing Mm. because of the show's nature of what we're doing is like quasi us talking through our feelings but of course there is a part that is like maybe perhaps shoddily done but still done analysis or commentary (laughs) do you mean like i think if you're just talking through your feelings about a work i don't you know i think that makes a lot of sense even if you're commenting on something that isn't the whole picture you know but i think if you're like 
making an argument, so to speak, it becomes uh, like there's very little ground to stand on. Um, (laughs) And I think that's what's tricky is that the show um, sometimes is doing multiple things at once. Mm. And it is not always clear. uh, I, I don't know if it was always clear whether we were, you know, just talking through a feeling we had or we're like making an argument mm-hmm. to like put forward, yeah. you know? Um, so, you know, it was definitely interesting, as AJ said, when we talked to AP about this uh, idea as well, mm-hmm. you know? And I guess it's just part of the format of it. Um, honestly, when uh, we... When I tr- talked India and Josh into reading the books, I guess I didn't know how much we had thought about this specific concept you know Mm. i think that's just a general larger content thing of like not really realizing how what it will turn into in five years because none of us had done anything like this before and it was kind of impossible to really know what was going to happen yeah and i and if i'm going to be honest i think um coming from me and josh who spent most of our time performing classical music and, and making it you know it is it's like a very strange thing to be making like art about art like essentially it's like a a type of the closest thing i could call it is criticism but i would be would not but i would not use that word and don't think we're engaged in literary i don't think that really accurately describes what's going on Mm. but it's this huge huge phenomena and it's everywhere and it's like this weird almost die um i don't know like having I feel like we're sometimes like someone else is digesting something for you in a way. I don't know. Mm. It, it's it's a very strange type of content that exists. <laughs> um, and Are you I talking know about this podcast, but it's a whole genre. It's not just yeah, but like I see. It's just it's an interesting thing in relationship to a work of art. You know, it is. It is. Yeah. Um, I think we're all just trying to make our, our make sense of it in our own way <laughs> mm-hmm. and sharing it because it's fun mm-hmm. to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like, yeah. yeah how long, how long has it been? Five years? Five years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, I, I, I years? thought about it. Yeah. I think we would have talked for, we would have talked, we talked in 2019. For the first time in 2019. Yeah. We, we, right. we had started the like ideation and like test episodes of the show toward the end of 2018 and then started releasing episodes the beginning of 2019 somewhere. And I think we spoke to Steve for the first time in the fall of 2019, right before I moved to Japan or maybe I was in Japan. I forget. It was before four four years. No, I think it was after because I think we had started our read through of Dead House Gates and then we because just the way the dates lined up, um, I think we'd started Dead House Gates and then talked to you for the first time uh, Um, in that fall. Yeah. So yeah, it's been it's been a while. Yeah. But I mean, I, you know, obviously you have come on and disagreed with us, which I won't lie, has definitely created some const like worry in me, you know, <laughs> definitely thrown me <laughs> off the first time you got on mic and were like, hey, blah, 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 you know. Um, that was my impression. Uh, verbatim, uh, verbatim. Mm. <laughs> that's, what, that's what it was. <laughs> yeah, I was very surprised, if I'm being mm. honest. Um, but you know, I think, you know, I'm it was so welcomed, especially uh, it, considering we were very honest on the show about our responses to your work. And I think it, it was nice that you were so honest and, you know, generally very patient and kind with us, mm-hmm. especially considering, um, you know, what we had talked about. And, you know, there's lots of things I've said that I don't think hold up <laughs> uh, on the show. And I think, you know, there's other things I do stand by, you know, but um 
for me, it was uh, it was always uh, great to interview you. I don't uh, so yeah, and they were that was certainly welcomed. You know, yeah, yeah, definitely. And and was was the whole endeavor worth it? Oh, 100%. Yeah. That's yeah. my answer. Yes. 100%. Yeah. I already liked the books. Though. That was, <laughs> <laughs> I was an easy sell. I refer to this podcast as the most constant thing in my life for the past five years. And I stand And this book series. It just, mm-hmm. it, it, it got us through a lot of different life events. And mm-hmm. I don't want to just bring it back to that. Um, but I really, it has been probably one of the most rewarding like experiences that we've, we've done. Um, and it, it made so many, so many connections and getting to know you was really cool. Like <laughs> having you on our show and being able to be like, yeah. And the author also comes on. Has been, yeah. 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 It's just, it's, it's been really surreal. Um, and I also never thought that you came on the show and um, yelled at me. So no, no, I didn't. <laughs> never me. No, no. Never say he never yelled. At never, us. yelled. Yeah. never. I would yelled. say he would have never yelled at us, but yeah. no, maybe not know. you guys, but <laughs> me. Not you for sure. But yeah, and it's it's just been um, it's been really interesting, like coming out of my own really small shell of what I was interested in mm-hmm. and opened me up to an entire world and community that I never would have been exposed to. Yeah. And yeah, well, I, I was really worried at the beginning when you were doing the audio, the audio, I was like, Oh my God, the audio of the of gardens of the moon, power I, earth, you know, yeah. I wouldn't recommend it. I wouldn't recommend it. No, um, I wouldn't either. Yeah. And it, uh, yeah. Second time through, third time through, fine. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. But first time through, uh, uh-uh. mm. yeah. It was never, it was never meant to be. It was never meant to be an audio. It was never meant to be performed yeah. as such. Right? And yeah, yeah. Hindsight, hindsight <laughs> is twenty twenty. Steve, mm, yeah. famously so. Yeah. yeah. AJ, Josh, you have anything else you want to add? No, yeah, no, I, de- it's been a del- yeah. Go ahead, AJ. Well, I, I just it, it, maybe I one more thing. Would definitely say it's like <laughs> it, it was it was a it was a, a worthwhile experience. I think uh, you know I got a minor in college, uh, you know, in a media criticism, um, which just means I watched a lot of movies and then talked about them. Um, but cool. so this was like a really nice outlet for that, you know, post graduation mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, and and I didn't know that. Yeah, and you know, I, I mean, like India said, I think this kind of whole thing of like. Uh, our, our our casual interactions or whatever you want to call them, just like having you on, it's a totally surreal thing. Um, and like, not that I ever never thought I would talk to a, a New York Times bestselling author, but I don't think I ever thought I would talk to a New York Times bestselling author who has written a 10 book, 3 million word series, you know? Um, uh, but I, I think also like just about the community really quick, like from the, the get-go, like from episode one, we we have we had always been in the the triple digits of of listeners which was cool absolutely mind-boggling because pete and i were like if we get a hundred listens in two months we'll be happy with that and i think after the first episode i think we had 180 listens the first day and you know it's it's gone up since then but but that was like the the community around this series and i think just yeah. like the 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 community of like fantasy novel enjoyers in general is is so large when you can tap into it but i think if if i hadn't done this show i don't think i would really have ever tapped into that that side of the you know the global community or whatever so it's just it's just been it's been really great uh and really rewarding in a lot of ways um talking to you uh being being on that list so yeah long journey for you steve you talk to different 
like people about your work often. Does that ever, I don't know, like we're, we're just like another podcast kind of like ending, but you're, you're still going to go on and you're still going to have these conversations. So does it feel like, I don't know, like an ending in a way, or does it just, it, this is just like the show goes on for Steve. Well, it's a bit of both, but it, it's, it's impressive that you, you stayed with it and you stayed disciplined mm. all the way through and, and, you know, read those chapters and discussed those chapters and kept coming back to it. And, and always fascinating to see, you know, those things that, you know, caught your eye, um, you know, that, that worked, if you will. And then the things that didn't, right. I mean, these are all, you know, things that, you know, I, I, I put away in the back of my mind, um, when I sit down to write something new, hmm. um, you know, the chances of, of something working versus not working, that kind of feedback is, it's, it's crucial to a writer. Uh, and it, it's, it's not the same as um, a workshop, like a writing workshop, because in a writing workshop, those other students are not your readers. Hmm. They're not, yeah. they're just not. Whereas when you're producing a work and then it gets, it, it comes out, and it gets to the fans and the fans read it in so many respects their observations their comments are infinitely more valuable and valid totally because they are fans of that genre so and yeah i mean i was i was aware from the beginning i was going to be shaking some of that stuff up because i, I was going after some tropes and, and having fun with them and some people take those tropes very seriously uh, far more than i did and that, you know, there was going to be fallout for that stuff. But but the interaction with fans and, and readers, um, yeah, like I say, it, it's it's so much more useful. It's so much more useful. And it's not just that, you know, you're, you're there seeking praise. No, it, it's it's more, what are the things that, that are, are of interest and catching, catching hold of the, of the readership? And has that changed over time? And I, I think it has, actually. I think people coming to the series now are not at the stage you guys were at when you first came to the series because mm. the world has moved on. Mm. So there, there's, there's a lot of life experience that, that you know, you're bringing to it, especially as you're getting towards the end of the series. You guys have been doing this for long enough. So it becomes valuable in that respect. And so it, for me, it's more like um, with each new pairing or group or, or, mm -hmm. or people doing an analysis, it's a reset. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a reset. Well... Um, it was uh, an honor to give feedback, I suppose. Um, <laughs> I, although I would be, I would deign to elevate our position. Um, I would but, love to see uh, myself in a writing workshop. <laughs> um, but listen, I uh, the show was an absolute joy to make, and talking to you was just uh, one element of it, e including our conflicts. Um, you know, conflicts, your work yeah. has been uh, tremendously meaningful to me. Uh, I think about it all the time in many ways, spiritually, politically, the list goes on. And it was a joy to share it with my friends. I'm sure I will wax nostalgically even more in our next final episode. But <laughs> um, final, final episode. Final, it, final. It, it was truly a blast to talk to you again today, Steve. Yeah. And I just want to reiterate, thank you for all your time and every all the conversations we've had. Uh, I think about lots of them all the time, and I'm sure I won't forget this one. It was really great to talk to you today. Yeah. Well, it's my pleasure. Yes, thank you. Yeah. 
was all right, everyone. Oh, um, this feels so crazy. This feels so <laughs> crazy. <laughs> um, yeah, we have one more episode that'll be out soon. Um, thank you for listening and, and thanks, uh, again. Um, unless there's anything else that we just do for- a compassion with Steve. Oh, whoa. <laughs> Oh, what does wow. this mean? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's gonna get a little sensual. Um, <laughs> we chant, we chant compassion as a Whoa. kind of joking end to the You're going to see it. Just do it, Peter. Well, so, no, wait, 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 wait. You're describing this as a very strange thing. <laughs> yeah, it's... Literally, at the end of the show, Peter says, when I say come, you say passion, come. And then we say passion. And that's how we... Yeah. And that's it. <laughs> but last... But like, do you watch Big Brother, Steve? <laughs> no. That's would have been the reveal of the I was, century. I was never more confident in anything that said that Steve wasn't watching Big Brother. Why Steve loves strategy. <laughs> that's, oh, there's yeah. a lot of strategy in that show, that's true. But I'm sure there is. But, yeah. You don't love reality At television? Cost? At what cost? At what cost, for real? Oh, um, well, at the end of that show, Julie says, be kind to each other. And... <laughs> So it's just kind of like that. Kind of, is yeah. that and, why? We, is that why we say no, it? it and, when you, and when you think about it, that's really what this show and series has been about. You empathy. Empathy. So true. That's so true. I would agree. Yeah. It, it's it's the best in us. Yeah. Seeking yeah. the best yeah. in us. So yeah. with that, Steve, you don't have to. You don't have to join the compassion. Yeah, we'll we'll do one, but you don't have to. Yeah. All right, I'll just witness. Okay, uh, perfect. Nice. Uh, perfect way. No, no, that's great. All right, Pete, let's go. When I say come, you say passion. Come, passion. Hello, everybody. Producer AJ here. It has been a minute. First, I just want to say thank you so, so much to everyone who came out to the stream of The Fallen uh, when we streamed last month. Uh, We raised over $5,000 for pro-literacy to help fund adult literacy programs worldwide with your help. If you missed the stream, don't worry. You can still watch the video of it on our YouTube through the link in our show notes. Thank you again to everybody who tuned in and donated. It really, really means so much that we were able to do something like this with this platform, and we, we just really, really appreciate it. Anyway, to the normal credits now. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. And of course, thank you again to Steven Erickson for being so, so generous with his time over the last four years. Uh, truly a wild experience to get to chat with you so many times. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If you would like to give your thoughts or feelings about this or any of our episodes, you can always email us 10verybigbooks at gmail.com. Tweet us at 10verybigbooks, or you can head on over to our Discord, bit.ly slash VBB Discord. That's capital V, capital B, capital B, capital D, Discord that link will be in the show notes thank you to all of our wonderful patrons over on patreon a uh, quick note we will be suspending payments over there for the next couple of months so if you haven't gotten a chance to get in there to listen to any of the patron exclusives now would be the time to do that for free because we will be deactivating uh uh taking the payments from you for the next couple of months but the content will still be there don't tell anybody um we'll also be releasing some of that stuff publicly i think but that's to be determined anyway uh if any of that sounds like something you want uh, you can head on over to patreon.com slash 10 very big books. Again, that link will also be in the show notes. And as always, thank you so very much to Dan Gesberg for making our spectacular cover art. You can follow him on Twitter at a underscore W underscore Dan G for the sound of a tumbleweed being blown through town by a dry desert breeze. Thank you as well to resident, my very good pal and friend, Scout Wilkinson for the special art she has provided for this last season, as well as creating the final podcast art that will grace your feeds 
henceforth. Uh, you can see that in your podcatcher presently. Uh, it's great. We love it. And we're so excited for that to be the final art of the series. Uh, you can follow her on Twitter, Blue Sky and Tumblr, all at Humble Goat. And you can see more of her work and commission her, uh, provided that they are open, on her coffee page at ko-fi.co slash Humble Goat. And of course, the wonderful wonderful music in today's episode is by the one, the only, Amaranthin from his album Simulant Rain, which you can find along with all of his other music on bandcamp.com. Links to all of their pages will be in the show notes, and 10 Very Big Books will be back next week, provided our recording schedule holds up on September 8th with our real, actual, final, last episode of 10 Very Big Books, the TVBB series mailbag and wrap-up. We'll be recording that uh, next week, hopefully provided nothing changes. Uh, so if you have questions, comments, stuff you want to get into us, uh, hop into our Discord. We have the channel open there. If you want to tweet at us, if you want to email us, uh, we will be pulling from all of those places. Um, so you have until September 5th to get that stuff in. Uh, and then the episode, hopefully, will be out, be out on September 8th. If any of that changes, we'll post it on our socials uh, and in the Discord. So keep an eye there. All that being said, I'll talk to you then. And thank you so, so much for listening.